Welcome to the SoGrow Marketing Council podcast. The SoGrow Marketing Council is a membership organization comprised of growing marketers who want to stay ahead of developments in multiple areas of marketing. This podcast features recordings of SoGrow Marketing Council meetings. Tune in to hear expert marketers share tips and discuss the latest strategies and tools in marketing. To join the next meeting and be part of the discussion yourself, visit SoGrowPR.com. That's S-O-W-G-R-O-W-P-R.com and click on the Marketing Council tab. Let's get growing. Welcome everyone to the SoGrow Marketing Council. I look forward to this meeting every month. So excited to see you guys today. So we get together every month as a group of marketers and we share tips and strategies of what's going on in our particular disciplines of marketing. Each of you represents a different area of marketing. And so it's hard to stay up to speed on what's happening in all of these different areas. So by coming and bringing tips and news from our particular industries, we're able to stay up to speed on everything that's going on in all these different areas. And we don't have to do all that research ourselves. So it makes us better marketers because we are able to see what's happening in multiple areas of marketing. And it also saves us a lot of time in the long run. So today you are invited to share a four minute educational tip. This is something that could be a new technology in your industry, or it could be something that you've learned working with a client or just a strategy, whatever you might think would be valuable to this group. And just keep in mind that it's educational. It's not just like a commercial for your company. We'll find out how great and brilliant you are and we'll want to work with you, but you know, just keep it as educational as you can. So each presenter has four minutes to share and we'll have a timer. If you go over, or I'll just kind of wave at you today and then we'll have one minute for questions. Um, you know, we have a little bit of a smaller group today, so we can have a little bit more discussion. We're not going to have to worry quite as much about the time today. And be sure that when you do present your tip, say your name, your company, and what your area of expertise is. This is also a podcast as well as a video. So for the people that are listening, we just want to make sure that they know who you are. And um, I'm going to go ahead and put the order in the chat today. So that way you guys know um, if your name is up there and you don't want to share a tip, feel free to just introduce yourself. We would love to just hear from you and know um, a little bit about your company. And if you guys want to put your contact information and your website and your name in the chat, go ahead and do that. I highly recommend you guys meet for coffee or ice cream and just get to know each other. This is always such a great group of people. And it's also a great opportunity for you guys to have different resources at your fingertips and also share business. One of the reasons this group started is because people kept asking me for recommendations of, do you have somebody who can do web design? Do you have somebody that can do sales? And I'm very careful about who I recommend, but now I have this great group of people and I'm able to give out names to people with confidence, knowing that these people really know what they're doing and they're experts in their industry. Also, if you need sales and graphic design and management consulting, you probably, you know, we can share business as well. So you probably need a lot of these clients probably need a lot of the same services. So it's just a great opportunity for us to also help each other's businesses. So if you guys don't mind, I would love to take a quick picture because um, I always love to just document and I don't want to take a picture without you guys knowing so you guys can smile and look beautiful. So everybody smile. One, two, three. All right, we'll do one more because I always close my eyes. All right, ready, set, one, two, three. Awesome, wonderful. So um, like I said, today's, you know, it's, it's casual. Feel free to ask questions. Feel free to engage in a conversation. Sometimes we have 
amazing conversations off of somebody's tip as well. Um, and then be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It's SoGrow PR backslash podcast. That's S-O-W-G-R-O-W-P-R.com backslash podcast. And then our next meeting is May 16th. So RSVP, if you'd like to present, you can submit a tip at the SoGrow website. And then also bring a friend because the more marketers we have, the more knowledge that we share and um, the more people we have in our network. So Rebecca, would you like to start off and share a tip today? Sure. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm Rebecca Britzi, management consultant to small businesses. And a lot of my clients are service businesses. So something that comes up fairly regularly is pricing and how and when they should talk about pricing. And while this is pertinent to our clients I, as service providers, this is also pertinent to us and the way we communicate with our clients. And this was what I had prepared to talk about today, but a conversation by pure chance came up about this on LinkedIn as well. And I know I'm connected to all of you on LinkedIn, so you might see that in your feed, which may be very excited that um, people have opinions about this. My position is that as service providers, it is our job and when we are serving our clients, their job. So it is up to us to encourage them to state prices upfront to avoid the back and forth of what is your price? Well, tell me your budget. Well, I'll tell you my budget when I know your price and so on. So at some point, somebody has to put a number in and anchor it. Service providers don't like to give their prices and there are three main reasons for that. So I'm gonna go through those three and why I think those are actually easy to overcome. The first one is so many service providers say, well, I can't state a price until I know exactly what the client's needs are. Fair, most services either are not flat feed or have ranges and a lot of dependencies. There should, however, be three questions that we each can ask that give us enough information to be able to say, based on what you're telling me, this is how I price that with previous projects that were similar, or this is my expectation based on the information I have now, and then it's also okay to say, here are the dependencies. Here are things that could change that price. But as I say, it's much more about putting something on, anchoring some price, some number down, and then the conversation can go around that. So that's the first uh, sort of counteraction to the objection of it's impossible for me to know a price. You're not giving a, a formal proposal at that stage, but you're setting an expectation and we all should be able to do that. The second objection is, is actually the easiest one to overcome. And this is something I hear with my clients, which is I'm worried that if I say my price, I will scare off the prospect. That's fine. This We should be comfortable with this. If the number that the service provider offers scares off the prospect, that is not the right prospect. Better to find that out sooner rather than spending a lot of time on that prospect and then quoting them a price and them saying that's outrageous. It is not my expectation. There are a lot of different ways to price services, and there are a lot of different reasons to price services that way. So if you are too expensive for somebody, there's somebody else out there that serves their needs. Let them go find that prospect. But you're not here to base your price on whatever the prospect wants. You know your value. So that's the second objection, fairly simple to overcome more in our heads than anywhere else. The third objection sort of brings those first two together, which is I'm worried about stating my price before I've had an opportunity to state all the benefits. Well, I put this back onto the service provider. Everything that we communicate to prospects, to clients, to our audience should be premised on the WIFM, what's in it for me, for the client. 
So to me, that is an indication that that service provider is communicating in features more than they are in benefits. At the point that somebody is asking, what is your price? That is not the very first thing they're going to ask you, probably. If it is, then those people are hungry to buy anyway, right? Because they're already thinking about purchasing your services. But if somebody's talking to you, there's been a lead in, either a referral or a previous conversation, or it's somebody you already know. So it's everything that comes before that. And so that's more about our day-to-day -day communication with the market, with our audience. That should always be premised much more on benefits than on features. So again, with that third objection, there's a concern of, I'm worried about giving my price because I haven't expressed the benefits yet. Then the fix to that is not to avoid giving prices, it's to improve all the communication that comes before so that there is already an understanding of why this person should buy from that particular service provider. So in conclusion, stating prices upfront is helpful. You know that whoever you're talking to, if they're interested in a sale, that is on their mind. If, even if they're not asking it up front, that can and will be a deal breaker. It is on their mind. They want to know. The sooner you can overcome that hump, the more time you're spending talking about the actual work and the actual benefits. Great, Rebecca. So many good things. Thoughts, questions for Rebecca? I feel like there's a lot that we could dig in. It's really helpful. So Rebecca, I'm oh, sorry, Nita, go ahead. Oh, I just wonder your thoughts about providing a price range, uh, particularly with regard to that number one in terms of needing to know what you know, know their knowing their needs and providing a range of pricing. Well, it could be from here to here, not like a huge range, but right. what are your thoughts about yeah. that? I I'm perfectly fine with that. And I'm fine with my clients doing that with the explanation of what affects the range. Right. So again, maybe stating those dependencies. Um, so saying it's between this and this based on X or depending on X or saying it's within this small range. Here are some things that could affect that, that could make it go higher or lower. Um, so, again, it's about managing expectations. So by giving a number, you give a starting point. So you do have to be aware that whoever you're talking to is going to be within a certain radar of that number um, or that range. So it needs to be not too broad, realistic. But then and then you can sort of state so it's not so much about them at that point knowing how far the number could go it's more about them knowing what's going to change that number so rebecca do you with your clients do you role play with them do you make them actually pitch to you or to the owner how, how do you how do you help them prepare for that moment you know, I would say that my work comes before that. I will if they want to, um, but it, that is not my, to me, that's a sales expertise. That's something that I would say should be happening when they're in sales training. So working with somebody like you, Scott, um, and, and more firmly in that more technical space of, okay, now we are firmly in sales. So what I'm talking about with them is more, is a little upstream from that, where they're at the point of saying, you know, if they're not comfortable saying their prices, and my concern is that they're not comfortable with their prices. So it's more about, you know, my work with them is more about understanding that this is your price for a reason, knowing how to connect the value of what they do to that price. So making that side of their messaging coherent. Then in terms of that actual delivery, if it's part of a sales conversation, that to me is more specific sales training. Okay. So how do you, how do you help them understand what their value is in the marketplace? It's through introspection. I mean, at the point that I've come in, they if they have a price, then they should know why that is their price. Mm -hmm. um, and so to 
in my experience, they're uncomfortable saying it, not because they don't think they're worth that amount of money, but because we're not comfortable talking about money as a, as people, right? It's more of a of a human instinct and and a way that we're raised and taught than anything else. Um, so so that's really what I'm there to overcome is saying, okay, if you know that you're worth this, then let's remind you why you're worth this. Let's make sure that we are connecting that to those benefits. So again, moving the conversation from features to benefits, and that every piece of that communication is with the with them in mind with the what's in it for me thank you rebecca how do you feel about tiers where you could say you know if you have expectations to accomplish this it's going to be this price range if you're you know more comfortable here it's going to be here or this is what we could do is kind of like the entry level sort of thing how do you feel like that fits in your comfort perfectly comfortable yeah Absolutely. There's no, in my view, there's no right or wrong way of pricing. So tiers, um, a scale, a range, you know, again, looking at those dependencies. If I think of an attorney, for example, an attorney has a lot within their scope that they cannot control, right? Because a lot of things might depend, especially if they're in litigation, if they're in contract disputes, depends on other parties and things they don't control. Um, if I look at Anita, for example, she's doing a lot of accountability, planning, et cetera. There's more there that she can control. So Different services have different levels of control on their pricing and, and you know, will need different models based on what they're providing. My main thing is always know exactly what that model is, know exactly what those numbers are, and don't give discounts. Um, it's much better to have what you're suggesting, Stephanie, which is a tier, than to have to make up pricing with each individual client. We, we had a client that had very, very grand expectations. And so we all got together as a team and we said, okay, if this client wants to accomplish this, this is how much it's going to cost. And it is a crazy number, but it's an option. And so it gives the client the option if they want to do that, that's right. what it's going to take. But it helps us to not get set up to accomplish those expectations <laughs> with a budget that doesn't match. So we, you know, it's, Absolutely. yeah, I, I totally agree with you to have that conversation up front can avoid a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, um, disappointment at the back, back end of the situations. Right. Right. That's great. Such yeah. a great topic. I feel like this is definitely helpful on multiple fronts, not just for our businesses, but also for our clients as well. So it's a great, great topic. Thank you for sharing, Rebecca. Thank you. Um, Scott, would you like to share a tip today? Yeah, so I'm just going to share my screen if that's okay. I have a little graph. Sure. Okay. Can everyone see my screen? Yes. So one of the things I'm going to talk about, oh, let, let me restart. So my name is Scott Siegel. I'm a co-founder of Momentum CPG. We help small emerging brands get on the shelf, make sure they grow, and more importantly, make sure, make sure they stay on the shelf. So one of the challenges that we often hear when working with sales managers is my team isn't doing what I want. So what I wanna share with everyone are five things that sales managers should do to be effective leaders. And if you were a teacher in school and you serve 50%, 46%, 57%, 43%, and 37% of the tests, what, what grade would you get? You would get an F, right? You would fail. So here are the five things that sales managers need to do to make sure they're effective leaders. Believe it or not, only 50% travel with their sales reps. So why is this important? If you're a sales manager or business owner and the only feedback you're getting is from your sales rep, that's not a good idea. 
You want to make sure that the strategy that you're putting together works. You want to see that person in action. And we just talked about coaching and training. If they're not meeting their quota, if you ride with them, you're going to be able to provide the right level of guidance and counsel to make them better. How about this? Only 46% have their rep sign an annual comp plan. Why is this important? It is always important to set expectations, right? You want to make sure that person owns their book of business. And the most important, either whether it be at the quarterly or the year end, it eliminates any surprises. One thing I forgot to put, make sure you have that sales rep sign that compensation plan, right? That way you get say, out of any trouble at the end. Only 57% create an accurate sales forecast. Well, why is that important? If they don't forecast, it impacts your P&L. It impacts everything you're doing on marketing. It impacts everything you're doing on supply chain. They own their forecast. You need to set the expectation, no sandbagging allowed. They need to hit their forecast. And as a sales manager, you're going to get a really good understanding of how well they know their business on how well they're forecasting. Only 43% provide clearly defined sales metrics. Well, why is this important? How do you know where you how do you know where to go if you don't have a plan? Right? How do you measure the team and hold everyone accountable if you don't have a quota? How do you go in, right, and make sure you're maintaining a certain level of focus and what type of lessons? And the fifth one. Only 37% train their sales reps before they start selling. Do you want your sales rep making a mistake in front of your biggest client? Or do you want them to make that mistake in front of you? Salespeople hate to role play. You need to make sure they do role play so that you can continue that training, you can continue that um, role play. And the other part that companies make is they assume training fits everybody. Typically in any organization, you have experienced salespeople and you have new people. Not everyone needs the same training. So if you go up to number one, if you're traveling with that sales rep, you're gonna to get to know that. You're gonna understand what unique training they need to make them better in the job. So if you're working with the sales team and you wanna make them effective leaders, these are the five things that you need to do to make them effective leaders. Awesome, thank you, Scott. That is super helpful. I feel like a lot of times marketing brings everything to the door and then it kind of falls apart at the sales process. Sure. <laughs> and there's only so much you can do because marketing can bring the sales, but usually the dollars come in the door with the sales team. So if you don't have that working, a lot of times marketing suffers because everybody looks back at marketing saying, well, the sales didn't come in the door. <laughs> And, and the marketing team is like, but but we brought the sales to the door. We need you guys to, you know, take it across the finish line. Well, that's why you create silos. That's how silos come in, right? So one of the other things that's always a, a good thing to do, if you're a marketing, I'm going to bring you on a sales call, right? Because what happens is marketing develops the plan. They give it to sales. Sales goes out and execute it. But unless you go with them and watch how they execute it, Right. There's always lessons to be learned in that. That way you're engaging everyone in the organization. And if you do that simple part of engaging, 
we're affecting you now, right? It, it just, everything starts to flow and everything works better. I, I'm curious, Scott, the difference between the first three months, let's say, of a new sales employee and then after that. So the frequency of some of these activities like traveling with them um, and that training, does that taper down, never to zero, but how does it change after their first three months? It does. Uh, so, so one of the mistakes companies make is they don't have a good onboarding process. Mm -hmm. Right. So think about when an employee walks into an organization. Well, here's your desk. And you go, okay, great. What do I go do? Just think if you put together a detailed onboarding program and they get it a week ahead of time. What am I going to do in the first week? 30, 90 days, six months. So what I would recommend, Rebecca, on that is at least once a quarter, that sales manager be traveling with that sales rep. Okay. And go to a different, go to a different customer. It's yeah. always good to get to know your team, understanding what's working. And then if you're really an effective sales manager, and we just talked about pricing and, and stepping outside your comfort zone, you should say, well, Stephanie, do you have any feedback from me? What can I do better? What you're doing is you're building that relationship. Nice. Thank you. There, there needs to be a, there absolutely, though, needs to be a plan indicated. So how often they, they travel together. Yeah. I love that you made that point, which relates to my question. And it's, I think you answered it already, which, and I would call it sort of an act after action, you know, debrief or something like that. So even with, and I'm shocked at the 50% statistic <laughs> in terms of traveling with sales reps, but um, like that seems really low to me and unfortunate, but even with the travel, even with the role playing, which to me though, that first and last statistic you showed certainly correlate to each other. Um, there should be some procedure or some kind of process to sort of assess, like, what did we just do? What was our experience? Like, with each visit, whether it's, you know, sort of an ongoing, we visit three clients at a time, or each time we go, we come back and assess. Um, what's your recommendation for a procedure to debrief following those visits? Great, Great question. So the... the... The point is, and I know Rebecca does this, you have to build that process. Everyone needs to understand those steps. So absolutely. Anytime you walk out of that call, you need to under, you need to basically ask four questions. Did we meet our objectives? What worked? What didn't work? And if you're there as a guest, you should ask that I, that I play the role you wanted me to play. So if you get in the consistency and the pattern of, let's get in the car, let's talk outside, what worked, what didn't work, what did we learn, right? And then I play the role. And that's all, that's it. Then you're setting that expectation. But if you do it inconsistently, it's never going to work. It needs to be part of the overall sales process. Well, Scott, you mentioned that role-playing is huge in helping people to learn and, and part of the training process. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but I worked for the Center for Professional Selling at Kennesaw State University. And this program has students in a room and there are cameras and there's a buyer, which is usually either the professor or an outside buyer, sometimes a student. And you actually do role plays on camera and yeah. a room full of 30 students watch and evaluate you. <laughs> it is. I always say, if you can get through that class, 
you can basically do anything because it is so I mean, nobody wants to be criticized, let alone judged on a piece of paper with a score doing something live because there's only so much you can anticipate in a sales call. Some of it is just stuff you have to deal with in the moment on the fly. So it's kind of excruciating <laughs> in the sense. So in terms of role-playing so that people don't dislike it, is there something that you could do to make it a positive experience so that they feel more comfortable? Is it, um, is there some way that employees actually would want to do it? Or is there always kind of just a, you just kind of have to do this to improve? It, it, it's all about setting up the framework and explaining why we're doing what we're doing. It's all, you know, the old saying, the word communication has a lot of letters. That means it's important. <laughs> it's all about the, it's, well, I try that with my kids and they just laugh at me. It's all about how you frame it up. It's as, as in any discussion, if you frame it up, this is going to make us better. This is going to help you achieve your quota. This is going to help you make more money. This is going to help us do this. It's really the way that you set it up and frame it up is what matters. Yeah, that makes sense. And it almost seems like the opportunity to maybe go to smaller clients and do real role playing and then having that debrief afterwards seems like it also could help with that too, where it's not role, it is role playing, but you're actually in the field, but maybe for not the big clients, <laughs> you know, maybe kind of starting out small too. Yeah. And it gets more complicated with bigger clients because more people want to go to the meeting. So I always had a rule of thumb. You weren't allowed to the meeting unless you had a role. Yeah. If you don't have a role, what happens is people, we're human. They think they have to say something because they're invited right. to that. What happens is they say the wrong thing. Yeah. So that sales rep who's been working on that client for a year and that person who comes and they don't do it intentionally, but they say the wrong thing, that years of work goes down. I mean, it literally is who's going to do what by when and what question are you going to ask? And Stephanie, you only get that one question. You can't, but it's framing it up. It's explaining it up front. That's why the communication is so important and having that process written down and going through it with everyone, right? is so important. So yeah. when they have the pricing discussion, they're ready. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It seems like companies need a lot of support to get down to that level of precision because you just invite people to meetings and put emails on there and for them Absolutely. to be able to think about that. Yeah, it makes, it makes a lot of sense in terms of the value that you guys bring with yeah, helping no, companies think about that. Yeah, for sure. Been in those meetings and that's when you just, your, your head hits the table and you go, oh my, that's not good. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you. That's great. Great. Great thoughts. Um, Anita, did you want to introduce yourself? I didn't know if you wanted to share a tip. You're welcome to, or if you just want to introduce yourself, it's totally up to you. Right. First time here. Uh, <laughs> Anita Henderson with Write Your Life. I'm known as the author's midwife. I am a uh, an author coach and book publishing strategist for um, corporate CEOs and um, entrepreneurs who want to use book publishing as a marketing strategy. And um, I think one of the things I try to encourage my clients to consider is that a book is bigger than the book. Uh, just the whole process of creating content for a book and then publishing it properly. Uh, is so much more than just, I've got a book, uh, am I, a bestseller or, you know, now I get to share my story, but really to encourage um, 
professionals to use your book as a marketing strategy and really as a leverage to get um, readers to the next level, really to work with you. So we've heard people talk about books as a big business card, and you could certainly think of it as that. You can surely put much more content and story uh, in your book than you can on a business card or in your uh, PowerPoint presentation or even on your website. And so a book in that way is certainly um, a tool for leveraging your knowledge, your expertise, uh, and ideally getting the readers to do the next thing you want them to do. So that's the leverage part. And so one of the things we do with um, our clients is to consider this uh, strategy, what we call seed, lead, and leverage. So you plant seeds in your book to lead readers to the next thing, right? Typically a website. So then in that way, you can leverage your book. What a lot of um, authors don't realize is that when people buy your book on Amazon, you have no idea who they are. And so the great point about seed, lead, and leverage is that as you plant your seeds in your book, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about what those are, it leads people to your website and they're opting in, ideally, to your, um, your list, right? And whatever you do with your list, hopefully you're further communicating with them um, about who you are, more about your story, the process that you uh, use, uh, typically with service providers or what you're known for if you're a CEO, a C-suite executive. And then the next thing you want them to do, which is perhaps hire you as a speaker, hire you as a coach or consultant, or do whatever the next thing is that equals a bigger dollar amount than just a $25 book. Um, so the question is, what would you rather have? A $25 book sale or a $250 an hour client or a $2,500 whatever speaker honorarium or a $25,000 contract? Your book can lead to each of those things. It starts with a $25 book uh, purchase, but then it should lead to something larger and that's that leveraging part. So in terms of the seeding in, in a book, um, something that clients can consider, your clients, if, you, if you're using this as sales and marketing opportunity for them, is to think about something bigger than just our, our content that's expanding beyond just the book. So people read in a certain way and they wanna get through the book, uh, especially these days, people are looking for shorter content, but not booklet style, but also not war and peace length. <laughs> So somewhere in between there. Um, and there may be some content that could be shared that's beyond, that may slow the read, for example, that could be accessed on that website. And so in a book, and you've probably read many of these types of seeds in a book, um, where an author might mention, um, you know, I, there is this process and then there's a checklist that I do and blah, 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 or that you reader could do go to my website and download the checklist. So these are resources. Uh, they may be additional uh, data points, research, photographs before and after. It could be a quiz, right? There are a number of different seeds that you could plant in your book throughout a book. So you maybe think about five to 10 throughout a book where you'll send uh, a reader to a resource website where they can uh, plug in their name and email address and then access these resources. So that's the seed you've planted in a book that leads them to a website where they can put their information in. And the only way they would find that particular resource page is because they've read your book. 
because it is blocked and you know hidden elsewhere. And now you are able to use your book as a leverage for further communicating with those readers. And I think a lot of um, authors, marketing folks, um, sort of um, overlook this opportunity uh, because it really does expand the reach of the author and it makes the book uh, truly a client getting uh, marketing tool. So Seed, Lead and Leverage is a great opportunity um, for any, any professional who's looking to use their book strategy um, uh, as leverage for growth and continued um, business expansion. And so, you know, that is part of the strategy of book publishing these days uh, for independent book publishers. Uh, it really is bigger than the book. And, and so Seed, Lead and Leverage is really a great opportunity. That's so great, Anita. I love that. And I, I feel like it's such a neat time for people to write a book because like you said, it used to be, you know, a book would be on a shelf and it would kind of sit there for years and not really change. And now it's so active. People can interact with things outside of the book. And there are so many ways that people can use these books as part of a strategy. And I know coming from the public relations perspective, when clients have a book, it's easier to get media interviews and it's easier to get speaking engagements. Just having that I'm an author really adds to your credibility and people just somehow seem to, to just gravitate towards anybody that is a published author. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, I agree. I think that some non-authors tend to poo-poo that. They think, oh, there's a million books out there. Why do I need to add another leadership book mm -hmm. or another sales book or another marketing book to the shelf? But the whole idea is that none of those books is your book. None of the books uh, shows your strategy or your story and or your approach. And truly without it, um, folks who are looking to bring on experts to their podcast or their TV news show or whatever, or the stage, really are looking for someone who's written the book on it. Uh, and if you think that there's a million of them out there and let someone else do it, then you're missing opportunities for sure. Um, so yeah, it, it's your unique approach to the thing. And, and that does make a big difference when folks are looking to hire. Absolutely. So great. Any thoughts, questions for Anita? Yeah, Scott, go ahead. You need to read Rebecca's book. I don't know if you've read <laughs> Rebecca's book. So every, um, no, I'm serious. She has everything you've done, she's done. She is, everything she talks about is in that book. It's easy to follow. It's simple, but simple in a way that she eliminates the complexity. And she literally will take any company A through Z on what to do. She, yeah. I, I tell everyone all the time when she's on that, people need to read her book. Absolutely. <laughs> um, thank you. The We've all heard, you know, everybody has a book in them. So I'm curious, Anita, how... When people come to you, do they already know what, or not what the specifics are, but what their plan is for that seed lead and leverage? Or are you working with people also who just say, I have a book in me, and part of what you're doing is helping them establish what those are? Number two, most people have no okay. idea what the seed lead and leverage is. They want to get okay. their story nice. out. They've been thinking about this book idea for five years, and I roll my eyes. I'm like, it should not, it does not take five years to get the book out. <laughs> But they just don't know where to start. They don't know about the right. strategy and they don't understand the value of story, even in a nonfiction book. 
right? They're thinking, I want to teach my thing, right? My process, my approach, my methodology, but they're not thinking about the value and importance of story, which is what we naturally connect to as humans. And they're definitely not thinking of how do I expand the reach of this book beyond just someone picked it up off the shelf or ordered it all online and they read it and it was great. So they're mm-hmm. not thinking about um, the importance of planting seeds in their book to um, generate leads for their business. And so that's part of the strategic approach uh, that we help them with. Thank you. But most people already have these things, right? So most people right. already have a PowerPoint presentation. They've had uh, a talk that they've given, you know, months or years before, or that they talk about all the time. They have their unique approach. They have a process or a system or something. And that's probably what they're writing about. Mm-hmm. But there's some portion of that that rather than slow down the read, they can put in a seed, right, and and put it on a, a, a hidden website to lead people to get additional information. So, Anita, do you have recommendations of, beside Rebecca's book, three books where people you think have done a great job with that that you would recommend that we read? Oh, wow. You're making me reach. Um, I probably could think of some. You put me on the spot and nothing comes to mind right now. But I would say that for as you go forward and read nonfiction books, look for it. Yeah. I would say look for it. Sure. Right. I, I mean, I could name like all of the books on the shelf back there, which <laughs> are clients of mine. But I would say watch for it and watch how many books don't have it. Mm-hmm. Right. For better or for worse. And they may be, you know, at the end and the, about the author page how you can contact the author. Perhaps there's information about their website, uh, which is far different from seed, lead, and leverage because now you're just going to their website. And hopefully they do have some lead generating content on their website, lead capture, but that is different from this particular strategy um, because now you get to see what people are actually interested in. And you know that those leads came from readers of your book. So we can all follow you on social media. And as your client's books pop up, we can see that strategy play out. So that would be a good way to. to More thing. You can even go to my website and all of those books. Yes. Yeah. Have sure they all have great examples. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's so good. Thank you, Nita. I love it. I just, I'm so excited about the publishing world. It's just such a neat time for publishing and, and it's so accessible now. And so I, I love that you help people. Everybody says that I have a book. And nobody ever writes it. And so you help them actually do it. And I love that. I just think it's such a neat, such a, it sounds like a fun career too. So wonderful. Awesome. Well, I'm going to share a tip today. My name is Stephanie Richards and my company is SoGrow Public Relations. And we help companies to be a force that cannot be ignored by their potential customers and by the media. So today I'm going to talk about something that a lot of people want to do, but they don't always know how to do it. And that is how do you become a featured contributor? So when you read a lot of magazines or if you read content online, there are people that show up over and over and over, whether it's monthly or weekly. A lot of these people are um, in this space with a regular column. That is public relations gold because people see you over and over and they get to know you. So there is a process to get those coveted spots. And there are four different ways 
that you can approach it. So if you want to make inroads and in becoming a featured contributor, you can start by looking for the outlets that have a formal submission form. A lot of these publications out there are looking for contributors. They have a form and you can go and fill out that form. And it's a standard process that, that they have. So you can even type in um, the industry that you're looking for, look for all those publications, and then start looking to see if they have these submission forms. Be ready to provide writing samples. So it's a good idea to collect anything that you've written before. It could be a blog, but it's best if you have articles that have been published to show because they're going to vet you against a lot of other people. There are a lot of people applying for these positions. So you really want to bring your best content to the table. And also look at the content calendar for that publication. They'll publish something usually in their advertising section that talks about what topics mm -hmm. they're looking for for the next year. The more that you can align with those topics in terms of the publication, the articles that you're suggesting, the more likely the editor is going to go, oh, this is this is right up our alley. And also sticking to the headings that the different outlets have. They usually have different topic headings on the website that you can look at. Using that language will help the editor know that you're paying attention and that you can write in those specific areas that they cover. So it makes it a little easier for them to say yes. So great. Great option. It's just there's a lot of competition there, but, you know, great option. I highly recommend, you know, picking one or two publications and focusing on that. Another option is you can establish a relationship with an editor that could potentially lead to a, a regular column. So this is my favorite. I love it when this happens with clients. And I had a client that ended up with two separate monthly columns in different publications because we submitted such great content to the editor that they kept asking for more and asking for more. And we ended up doing it monthly. We just established a relationship and they're like, okay, we can do this every month by this deadline. And to me, that's the best option in terms of those spots are not just open to the public. So those publications tend to have fewer contributors. So it's not quite as much competition for eyeballs and, and you get a little bit more of, of prominent placement or something like that. Um, some publications have rules in terms of how many people can be, how many times a specific person can be published in the magazine. So sometimes it's, oh, we only have, you know, four pieces from one company per year, something like that. So there are things like that. And then you may have some restrictions on what you can write about. But, you know, again, that's, it's a usually a great, great option. Um, if you don't necessarily get accepted as an official contributor, you can still have a strategy that mimics being a, a regular contributor by targeting a few select publications multiple times, rather than taking, let's say, 25 publications and sending different stories to all those publications. Maybe you pick three publications and you just continue to submit content and try to get it published. That way you're popping up in front of these audiences more frequently rather than a vast number of audiences once. You're trying to get in front of these audiences more and more so that way they become familiar with your brand. So even if they don't have an official submission form or if the editor doesn't ask you, if your content is really good, you can sometimes mimic that. And then another option is to be a paid contributor. I mean, obviously that's great when you get paid for your time. Um, and these positions can be wonderful as a business professional. They can be a little bit tricky if you are a business professional because you really have to play like a journalist. And so there are certain things you can write about, certain things you can't write about. You have to be careful of conflicts of interest. 
So generally speaking, if you're looking for public relations, you're not necessarily going to have a paid um, role as a contributor. Usually it's going to be, you know, something where you're just submitting content, but you know, if you are a paid contributor, it's, it's great. And there are great options there. Um, just be aware that you're probably going to be doing a lot more interviewing and probably focusing on other people's businesses. And you're going to get the exposure by being the writer, but it's not necessarily going to be, you know, your expertise and your thoughts as much as it is going to be focusing on other people. So I highly recommend for um, your businesses and for your clients, just thinking consistently about, you know, being in these publications over and over versus being sporadic with it or, you know, being um, spreading your, your um, content to multiple publications where you don't quite get as much exposure in front of multiple audiences. So being a regular contributor is great. It is PR gold. So those are just a few ways that you can do it. So before we wrap up, any thoughts or questions, comments? I'm going to ask so, about the value of the byline um, as a, I don't know, I guess as a marketing feature. I think sometimes we overlook our byline, that little bio at the bottom of the article. Talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So the difference between public relations and advertising is advertising, you get to control the message, you get to control the content, and you get to control the frequency. With public relations, you are accepted to be published in something, but there are usually a lot more restrictions on it. And one of those is that you usually can't be as salesy. So a lot of times the only exposure that you get is the byline and the, the bio in the bottom where it usually has a link back to your website. And to your point, Anita, what you talk about with seeds, that's a great place to put a seed. Instead of just putting a link to your website, maybe you have a free downloadable guide, or maybe you have a newsletter or some sort of content that you want people to go back to and download, that's a great opportunity to do that and be able to send people somewhere specific so you're not wasting that opportunity. Depending upon the publication, sometimes you can put a link in the publication. Like we have clients that have eBooks and things that somebody can click on and download. Some publications are open to that and some publications are not. It really just depends on the outlet. So look for those opportunities, but also be careful because a lot of editors won't let you do that sort of thing. And then once you have something published, you can put that article on your website or mention that you've been published by these publications. And that gives you a lot of credibility and there's added exposure for that. And then there's also exposure in terms of, um, or there's also benefits in terms of search engine optimization. When your website links back from a major website like Forbes or something that's a, a very reputable website, even a trade publication, Google loves that and they see that as valuable content. And so it bumps your website up a little bit too. So there are tons and tons of benefits just to be in these different publications and have your byline in them for sure. So any other thoughts or questions before we wrap up? Wonderful. Thank you guys so much for coming today. It's so valuable to just learn from you guys. You guys are so smart and you're so good at what you guys do. So thank you for sharing your tips today. Thank you for asking wonderful questions and having a great discussion. So I would love to see you guys at our next one next month. Um, I believe the date was May 16th. So again, sign up, bring a tip and also bring a friend because we would love to have some more marketing experts join us as well. And so um, you guys can check out the podcast. And, um, you know, if you guys want your video clip, let me know. I'm happy to have you guys use your video clip because you guys shared some great tips today. So you can use it for your own marketing as well. 
and we will sign off and see you guys next time. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for listening to the SoGrow Marketing Council podcast. Want to be part of our next meeting? Visit SoGrowPR.com. That's S-O-W-G-R-O-W-P-R.com and click on the Marketing Council tab to sign up for our next event. Until next time, keep growing.